talking Dice Masters, the beauty of the underlying mechanics, the hidden complexities, and the strategy, tactics, and decisions of competitive play. If you're just starting the game or have been here since the first set, hopefully you'll find something in this show that'll do you some good. So shake up your bag, reconnoiter your opponent, and get ready to roll. And like the brood X cicadas, we're back. Yeah, it does kind of feel like 17 years. <laughs> yeah. We started working on this so long ago, and then it took us so long to finish that even memory of the cicadas has receded into the distant rearview mirror of time. For example, we recorded the guests for this episode way back when those cicadas were still hatching in April. Hopefully, the concept for this show doesn't fall apart like some of those poor fungus-ridden horn dog insects that were splintering to pieces as they finally emerged from the earth. Yeah, there is the danger that we've left this idea in the proverbial crockpot for way too long. That's the thing with pandemic time. I feel like I'm stuck in some Boolean loop where so much is happening, and yet I'm making no progress. Like walking the bog in ankle weights. And every time you try to climb out of the bog to reach the dry level path, you slide back down the hillside. All this is to say that we've been working on this episode for a long, long time. And now you're literally on the verge of taking off to Germany to attend a music conservatory for the next seven months, and we'd better get down to brass tacks. Yep, time to snap out of this and actually do the show. Indeed. So let's finally crystallize these ideas into something tangible. You see, the seeds behind the idea for this episode have been germinating for months now. I've been thinking quite a bit recently about big data and machine learning and the way it has been revolutionizing the way we think about the world and how we understand the underlying structural patterns of our reality. Machine learning and gaming has been around since Deep Blue took on Kasparov in 96 and 97. But now, that's almost 25 years ago, and things have since accelerated exponentially. I mean, NPR was recently talking about a new device that allows a paralyzed man to communicate by imagining handwriting. I suppose you're going to be talking about that Invisibilia episode? Yeah, that's one of the things that really got my wheels turning, that particular podcast episode. As opposed to the paralyzed man mind-writing business, the episode you're talking about, I think, was called Two Heartbeats a Minute. And I promise you, faithful listener, that we're going to bring this all back to Dice Masters, because as you know, my mind is a one-track sieve in that regard. But in the meantime, if you want to follow along at home, or later listen to the reference material we're going to be talking about today, you can find links in our show notes at... RollandThunder.xyz forward slash 218 for Season 2, Episode 18. Anyway, that Invisibilia episode was about confronting scale and tempo when you're trying to grapple with gigantic long-term problems like climate change. And the hosts go around talking to a handful of people from disparate professions who form an unlikely team to take on the threats of climate change with these out-of-the-box David versus Goliath-like ideas. And it's well worth a listen. But for the sake of our episode today... There were two guests on that particular podcast, Britt and Aza, two guys, technologists, who were at the time working for Twitter and left Twitter when their original utopian ideas that universal hyper-connectivity would lead to a better world ran into some massive speed bumps. They started by wanting to use machine learning on big data to help deal with climate change and started documenting these horrific statistics, like Germany having lost three-quarters of their flying insects since 1989, 
Anyway, like me, they heard this story on NPR about animal communication and this primate expert who was painstakingly cataloging monkey sounds. And it struck them that maybe they could use machine learning to decode what the monkeys were saying and figure out if there was the foundation of a language there at all. Invisibilia defined machine learning as algorithms that teach themselves to perform a task or understand a thing by scouring reams of data and identifying patterns in that massive wash of information. The idea occurred to them because in 2017, a technologist took all the words in the English language and used them to create an image, a three-dimensional cloud of tiny dots hovering in space, each dot representing a word, a cloud that looks like a galaxy or collection of stars, but it's not random. Where the stars are depends on how the words are related to one another. For example, the placement of the star for man in relation to the star for king is relative to the placement of the star for woman in relation to the star for queen. The distance is the same. Analogies are represented geometrically, pictorially. It's pictorial math based on words a mathematical pictorial cloud in 300 dimensions. Furthermore, it allows you to use understood mathematical functions and concepts to solve typical mathematical questions. An example they gave on their podcast was hipster minus authenticity plus conservative and the computer spits out electability. German, French, Japanese, all were turned into clouds of points. Then in 2017, someone superimposed the Japanese cloud shape on the German cloud shape. Everyone thought that wouldn't work, but underneath it all, the shapes were almost identical, which allowed for a remarkable accurate translation from one language to another. Works with over 100 languages so far, and they all seem to share a universal human meaning shape. The idea was then to overlay this monkey communication cloud to contrast that with human shapes, to try to decode animal communications, even to just check to see if some animals have language-shaped clouds at all. And that's around when I showed you that Vsauce video. Exactly. The one on Ziff's Law. Seeing as that's the spine of this episode, can you give us the background on Vsauce and that episode in particular? Sure thing. You might have seen the meme Vsauce Michael here, but if you haven't seen Vsauce, he's a guy named Michael Stevens. He's kind of an internet celebrity who created and hosts this popular YouTube slash educational slash entertainment channel called Vsauce. He's not only the host on the channel now, but in my opinion, he's still the best. And basically, Vsauce digs into, explores, and illustrates deep scientific topics, mathematical theorems, and intellectual curiosities every episode. So that's Vsauce Michael here. Right. And when I heard you talking about that Invisibilia episode, it made me think of Vsauce's Ziff's Law video, because I knew you'd be interested. So for the first few minutes of this podcast, we're going to be referencing this particular Vsauce episode, which you can find the link to in our show notes again at... Rollinthunder.xyz forward slash 218. But in the meantime, you can just follow along with us without consulting the text. You might have noticed that in your last sentence, you used the word the twice. I see what you're getting at here. Yep. In fact, about 6% or 1 16th of the words that we write, read, or encounter on a daily basis is the word the. And this American linguist slash mathematician at Harvard in the early 1930s noticed this interesting phenomenon. Whether the most commonly used words are ranked across an entire language or just in a single book, Almost every time, a bizarre pattern emerges. 
The second most used word will appear about half as often as the most used word. The third, one-third as often as the first. The fourth, one-fourth as often. The fifth, one-fifth as often. The sixth, one-sixth as often. And so on and so on, all the way down. The amount of times a word is used is proportional to one over its rank. Word frequency and ranking on a log-log graph show a nice straight line, a power law. The phenomenon is called Zipf's Law. Nearly half of any book or article will be nothing but the same 50 to 100 words, and the other half will be words that appear in the selection only once. The top 25 words in the English language account for approximately one-third of what we say, and the top 100, half of what we say. For those of you who are curious, here are the top 20 English words. The. Of. And. To. A. In. Is. I. That. It. For. You. Was. With. On. As. Have. But. Be. They. And if that was wild enough, it turns out this law, like the 300-dimensional clouds that you were talking about earlier, doesn't just apply to English. It applies to all languages, even languages we haven't been able to translate yet. And we have no definitive idea why. How could a creative endeavor like language be reduced to such a predictable and repetitive algorithm? Ziff's law turns out to be similar to an older observation from the late 1800s by a guy named Vilfredo Pareto, who came up with a concept called Pareto's Principle, which tells us, as a rule of thumb, it's worth assuming that 20% of the causes are responsible for 80% of the outcome. Like in language, where the most frequently used 18% of words account for over 80% of word occurrences. The richest 20% of humans have 82.7% of the world's income. 20% of patients use 80% of healthcare resources. Microsoft reported the 80% of errors and crashes in Windows and Office were caused by 20% of the bugs detected. A common business trope is that 20% of your customers are responsible for 80% of your profits, and 80% of your complaints you receive will be from 20% of your customers. So, if Ziff's law is a refinement of the Pareto principle, it unsurprisingly doesn't just mysteriously describe word use. According to Vsauce, it's also found in city populations, solar flare intensities, protein sequences and immune receptors, the amount of traffic websites get, earthquake magnitudes, the number of times academic papers are cited, last names, the firing patterns of neural networks, ingredients used in cookbooks, the number of phone calls people receive, the diameter of moon craters, the number of people that die in wars, the popularity of opening chess moves, even the rate at which we forget things. There are many theories about why Ziff's law exists, but there are no conclusions. And the Vsauce video dives deep into what might be behind the law. Again, check it out if you're interested. But like a one-track mind, we wanted to see if it applies to Dice Masters. And so, we wanted to put the power of machine learning to the task of analyzing some big Dice Masters data. We decided to collect the recorded results for the entirety of this current modern meta, seeing as it's been dragging on so long, and we reached out to some of the stars of our community for some help. Special thanks to James Bloor for all the modern dice fight results, to Chris and Andy for the MOD modern results, and especially to Steve O'Muck for hooking me up and guiding me through using his incredible spreadsheet to process the data. And the results, you might ask? Well, unlike our English language equivalent, we didn't have quite the breadth of the entire Project Gutenberg database, plus every entry in Wikipedia. But even with our imperfect and relatively limited Dice Masters database, 
we could still see the cards beginning to slot into the Ziff power curve with the top two cards, the Dice Master equivalents of the and of, going to extremely helpful globals that were logarithmically more prevalent than the following utility and win condition pieces, and so forth, dropping down into that Pareto principle curve that is so common to see in nature, where 20% of the cards make up 80% of what's actually played. Yes, Dice Masters 2 seems to follow the mysterious Ziff's Law. So, we're obviously wondering, what were the 20 most played modern cards of last year? Alright, drumroll please. Number 1, Clayface Restless. Number 2, Atlas Purged of Pem Particles. Number 3, Gazer Evil Familiar. Number 4, The Dreaded Becky Lynch Made in Ireland. Number 5, Booker T Ringside Announcer. Number 6, Static Field. Number 7, The Godcatcher Famous Walking Statue. Number 8, Istrid Horn Moneylender. Number 9, Eddie Guerrero I Steal. Number 10, Black Widow Agent. Number 11, Intellect Devourer Deadly Puppet Master. Number 12, Drax the Pacifist. Number 13, Poison Ivy Red. Number 14, Asuka the Empress of Tomorrow. Number 15, Spider-Man, Public Menace. Number 16, Atlantis, City and Stronghold. Number 17, Jerry Lawler, Ringside Announcer. Number 18, the super rare Thor, Your Mungan's Fear. Number 19, Typhoid Mary, Red Rubber Boots. Number 20, The Collector, Stolen Cosmic Cube. And also tied at 20 was Villainous Pact. So, for those curious, the breakdown of cards played in terms of energy type Bolts came in first, followed by masks, fists, and then shields. So, now that we've done the macro, let's get down to the micro and talk about how to use these cards. Yes. To discuss the first two most used cards from the list, I'd like to welcome our first guest and friend of the podcast, Nick Wally. Nick, welcome to Rolling Thunder. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Well... We've got a big question for you tonight. We've been doing some huge mega data analysis. We've been just kind of combing through all of the modern lists since COVID began, crunching big data. And we've come up with a list of all the most used cards, and we're comparing them to Ziff's Law. And the top two cards are Clayface and then Atlas. So we decided to invite you on the show and pick your brain for why you think that might be the case. Well, I mean, it's the easy option of they're just good. (laughs) But why is the question? Why would Clayface be the most used card of all? So I think a lot of it comes down to, in a game where there is a lot of random factors, i.e. you don't know what you're going to draw from your bag, and then you don't know what you're going to roll once you do draw it, these two cards in conjunction can really fix a lot of that. So it's all about that phrase that you've probably heard before, the bag management. Because Atlas will let you keep rotating your bag in the right sequence, 
and Clayface will really help you maximize what you get out of it. Okay, well, let's jump back from the bird's eye view here and maybe start with the beginning. Do you have Clayface out in front of you and Atlas in front of you? Why don't we start with Clayface because he was number one. If you could read the text, that would be great. All right, so the Clayface ability, which I really love the way this card was designed because it makes a lot of sense, both the character ability and the global character ability. While you have Bolt, Fist, Mask, Shield, Energy in your reserve pool, Clayface gets plus five, plus five, and Overcrush, which is a cool ability that gets outshone by other cards. But then the global, to help make that happen, is pay a mask once per turn. You may take a die from your used pile and add it to your reserve pool on any energy face. Mm -hmm. And one thing to point out, it's once per turn, so you can also do it on the opposing turn as well. Yep. And things get super hairy if there's two clay faces, right? Yes, that's definitely (laughs) a situation you should practice. But then checking out the Atlas, he has the Amplify ability, which... You use an action and spin him up, and he'll actually flip over if you do. But I don't think I've ever seen anyone actually do that, even though he gains <laughs> Overcrush. But the global, pay a fist, once per turn, on your turn, prep a die from your bag. So it's the same as the uh, Resurrection global, except it's a fist global, even though he's a shield character. Right, instead of a shield, right. So because the atlas seems a little more straightforward let's start with that even though it is number two can you walk somebody who's never played it before how that turn two going into turn three would work ideally so at the start of your turn you're always going to draw four dice and so if you're using this global to prep a die that means you're going to end up having five dice on your turn and so it's what's been referred to as the five in five out principle If you prep a die during your turn, you well, if your bag is empty, you'll have to refill it. You want to put five dice in, you put one into your prep, you have four in your bag to draw, and so you know exactly what five dice you'll have for your following turn. And then you'll want to try and follow that principle again on the next turn of prepping when you have just five dice in your uh, used pile. So that you can keep repeating that and you know exactly what's going in and exactly what's going out. And it cuts out all the sidekicks from the previous one because they're stuck in transition. So it keeps things nice and smooth, correct? Yes, yes. The transition zone. Very important (laughs) or properly called out of play, whoever you want to talk to. It segues nicely into Clayface because... Sometimes you might have more than five dice in your use pile, so that segues into Clayface. Care to comment on that? Yeah, and so that's where if by chance you start your turn, and the previous turn you had six dice, well, now you've kind of broken the five in, five out, you're going to need to prep more. But what Clayface will do is you can just pay a mask, pull a die out of your used pile. It's now in reserve pool, you've decreased the dice in your used pile, and now you're back to the five in and five out. And so you don't always have to use Clayface to get a double energy symbol, though it's most beneficial when you do. And instead, what you can do is just pay the mask, pull in a sidekick on a question mark, or a fist if you know you're going to use the Atlas Global, but why not do a question mark? And so even if you're not gaining energy, you're at least putting the bag in the right state. And so you can keep prepping appropriately. With the Atlas Global. Okay, so Atlas clearly helps set your bag and get things running nice and smooth and orderly so that you know what's going in and what's coming out and what you can expect. Let's talk about Clayface now, because it seems more complicated 
and potentially more powerful in some ways. Can you discuss just from a bird's eye view why it has so much flexibility and power? Yeah, taking it from the Atlas standpoint, which if you haven't practiced with Atlas or a prep global, you should. It's a good habit to be in. But the Clayface ability gives you more control over that. And then it also, you're paying one energy to potentially get two. And so if you have the right global, and that global might need two energy, then suddenly you're gaining on that. Or it's giving you one energy, turning it into two, whenever you can pull in some sort of character or action die. Mm -hmm. And so it's simple ramp, even though it doesn't churn the bag kind of prevents churn i guess and it's fair to say that it's sort of a global multiplier and if globals are important on your team especially mass globals because it's a mass global that it just multiplies it or enhances the ability yes it definitely gets the most use if you're trying to run a very mask centric team so for instance if we want to dip into golden which i think the only card i have pulled up to do that is the old pxg global where it was pay a mask to move up to two sidekick dice from your used pile to your prep area. You could do it as many times as you want, and it didn't have to be during your turn, like the current PXG Global. So you could use that to prep all of your sidekicks during the opponent's turn. And the Clayface would just let you double up on that, because you could prep a mask character die on your turn, spend two masks on the opposing turn for the PXG Global, then spend another mask to get that double mask die back, mm -hmm. and thereby you're using essentially two masks to uh, prep all of your sidekicks. Great. So PXG is something, the original PXG, that can work well with it. I'm assuming the new PXG works well with it because it's a mass global as well. Yeah, the, the new PXG is all right, but it loses the uh, potential of doing it on the opposing turn. Right. I meant the middle PXG, the what is now the collector global, I should say. Oh, yes, yes. The uh, field of sidekick. Yes. That one, yeah, that one's good because then you could take that double mask character, pull it into your reserve, and you have a mask for your turn and a mask for the opposing turn all in one. Yeah, it's such a, a varied card because it has so many uses. It's the way I think of it since we're talking Zip's Law. The first analogy that was made with it was well, like with, with the language. So the way I think of it is with Atlas and with Clayface, like that right there covers all of your articles and your prepositions. They're just like they're catch-alls that are like glue that stick the words that actually matter together, which I feel like is why all the teams have them. Because, you know, your important words that actually infer the meaning of the sentence are all like your wing condition or your heavy control. You yeah. Know? Clayface will get you to that wind condition or get you to that control or get you to that ramp that you need. But while we're talking globals, any other ones that jump to your mind that Clayface really enhances? So the static field global is definitely one that gets used a lot on the uh, control-based teams, or at least non-attacking teams, because it has that pay a mask, remove target attacking character die from combat. Mm -hmm. And so if you have a mask character in your use pile, one mask becomes two, you're removing two characters instead of one. Right. Easy enough. And I mean, on the other side, you can also use a card like Anger Issues, which has pay a fist to uh, give target character die a plus one attack. And so you could try and do a similar thing of spending it on your opposing turn to get attack or maybe get defense with the shield globals. 
but it's just a step behind because removing attackers is far superior to just pumping up the stats of a character especially because it's most optimized on the opposing turn and plus because it's a mask and clayface is a mask and it plays well with mask characters but it can play well with fist characters too you've mentioned anger issues any others that jump uh, to your mind yeah so there's also the Cree captain global which is a fist character and if you go with mm-hmm. the Cree captain warmonger who just has the global it says pay two fist once per turn the next character die you purchase this turn costs three less and so it's netting you a discount of one if you have two fists, you're paying two, but getting a discount of three. Yep. However, if you have that Cree Captain die in your used pile, well, then you're paying one mask to get two fists to get a reduction of three. And so you've just gone from one energy to a three energy discount, right. which is tremendous ramp. And especially if you're using the Atlas and Clayface globals in tandem, what you can do is just always Clayface the Creek Captain die, and it basically just stays out of your bag. It sits in the used pile, and so you can always use it to discount your characters. Right. Or it also, uh, at least for a while, it was, for example, the team that you brought to the most recent Origins, however many years ago that was now, but for any... <laughs> Turn three, turn four, even turn five crapshoot team for a while, that was a staple and essential. Maybe still is that combo of three. Yeah, Yeah, it's interesting. So, you know, other things that were played with Clayface. Uh, The team I was referring to, by the way, was the one with the uh, Poxwalkers and Thunderbird. I I don't remember what you brought for your main event, but the golden event, I think it was. Yeah, I think I called that the Yondu special. (laughs) The Yondu special. (laughs) Which, (laughs) yeah, I think that was mentioned in the previous episode I was on. But just yeah, it was, yeah. crazy, convoluted, one-turn kill that could eventually happen. Yeah. And then the other thing that it might be useful is any of those two-energy generic globals, like the Supreme Intelligence Global. Or Hella. Or Hella. Or any of those. It allows you to get there for a price of one, right? Yeah. The Supreme Intelligence Global is really good with Clayface if you know what you're doing. I believe I was playing Laurier at Worlds, and he almost beat me on his turn two because i brought clayface so kind of walking through he won the roll off and opted to go second even though he was playing a very fast low energy aggressive team he was playing the fabled fish slap with the Mm -hmm. atlantis which is a two cost action but he would wait and go second that way he would have his four energy he could spend two to buy atlantis one energy to clayface that atlantis die in and then buy another atlantis die and then he could wait till my turn on what would be my turn two, because then he could use his fourth energy from his roll to clayface in one of his Atlantis dice and use the Supreme Intelligence Global to then prep the other one that he's already bought. Right. And so in his first turn, he bought two actions for four energy total and had one of them prepped, all because there was a lot of clayface ramp to go around yep savvy play so that's cool so that that brings up a couple questions here about clayface because it is so powerful and it is a double-edged sword going to that old maximum of make sure if you bring a global that you can use it better than your opponent any recommendations on that i mean obviously that is an example of the dangers of bringing the global thoughts Yeah, so I think I've seen less use of the Clayface Global recently, just because people are realizing that against a few certain teams, it's really problematic if you bring it for them. And so if they have it, and then you bring it too, they're making way better use out of it than you can. 
And so it's one of those where it's not always nice if the opponent brings it, but you definitely want to make sure you can use it better than they can. Right. So if you're playing a Godcatcher team, if you bring in a Godcatcher and if they happen to bring Thor with the global payable to discount an action by three, you can really ramp up your Godcatchers. I did not bring Clayface or Thor, but the times that an opponent brought that, it was really okay. bad for them. <laughs> right. Though I think I was using the Forge with Energize to discount my actions anyways, so I could Energize Forge. I could then buy two Godcatchers real quick. If they brought Clayface, I can bring in a Godcatcher die. There's two more bolts, and I've bought all four Godcatchers for very little energy. Right, wow. Uh, one one other thing, which we forgot to mention global-wise that's good with Clayface, if you have a way to handle it, is with the Doctor Strange global. If you want to make the opponent tear their hair out, you know, you can do that. Oh, the f- oh yeah, the, the force, force attack, attack yeah. with a mask. I guess that's the counter to static field. Instead of preventing them from attacking, just make them attack a bunch. If you have, like, Big E or some other way of mitigating the damage, maybe... Kang, if you have enough life as a resource, you know. Yeah, yeah definitely. Or uh, I've seen popular the Poison Ivy with Deadly, because yep. she won't take any damage unless it's a villain, so force the non-villains to attack. I've had that happen when I've played Godcatcher teams. Force your Godcatchers to attack into a Poison Ivy, they go away. Token. Even worse if they're using the reverse Godcatcher, the two-cost. Why not? So any other thoughts about edge case uses that you've seen that are fun with this global or this card so i have a few different teams that i've seen it really used well one of the more interesting teams i think it was joe vega from the cr game room was running a create bonfire team Mm -hmm. which the action reads deal one damage to target character or player for each different energy type bolt fist mask shield you have in your reserve pool So it's pretty much the same wording as Clayface. Try and get all the different energy types, then you play the action and deal four or possibly five damage on a double burst if you have a question mark. And so you could play that with some of the crossover characters to Mm -hmm. then optimize that, because if you bring in a crossover character, you're getting two different energy. I've tried that same tactic with just trying to play Clayface, the character itself. Yep. They're decent teams. I don't think they're tier one at all. Right. But that Clayface himself is a good backup win condition on a pinch. If the other team has a way to shut you down and you're intended... If you're you're really in parity. If you're really in parity... And it's, you're in a pinch because they have your wing con shut down. And you just need to get up, like, one life before the fifth turn expires. Yeah. <laughs> but, you're, but you're right also, too. It's neat that the card has that built-in global that synergizes so well with his ability. Because not only does the global enhance other globals, but it allows you to set the right energy in your reserve pool for him to get his four types or like Joe Vega's team there with bonfire, create bonfire bonfire or any of these checking energies like the, the old firestorms. Yeah. Yeah. Or even like that green lantern human. That's why you see this card on that team so much because it allows you to pull masks right into the reserve pool. Right. Yeah. The green lantern human is probably one of the best teams to use it on, which Green Lantern Human says, while Green Lantern is active, your Justice League character dice gain when this character die attacks, deal one damage to target a player for each energy symbol in your reserve pool that matches this character die's energy type. So it's the old Lantern Ring, which is appropriate, but now on a character. And so you can keep pulling in your masks and attack, deal a bunch of damage. And then furthermore, 
because it's a mask ring team, you bring static field to bring them all back, <laughs> and then you have yeah. a bunch of masks anyways on the opponent's turns. So they can't attack. Right. Yeah. A frustrating team if you uh, aren't prepared to handle it. What cards would you use if you want to kind of shut Clayface down? What is a good anti-Clayface card in your mind? Uh, the first one that jumps to mind would be the Nefarious Broadcast. So if you know your opponent is going to be trying to use Clayface on your turn to do whatever they need to, you play Nefarious Broadcast and they can no longer use any more uh, global abilities for the rest of the turn. Yeah. You could still use a bunch of global abilities before you do the action, so you can use the Clayface, get everything, and then it wears off by the time the turn ends, so you could try and do it on their turn. Except then you're also bringing a basic action and they could just do the same thing to you. I've also seen the Polaris. There's a Polaris that limits it so that players can only use one global ability per turn. And so if you're using your Clayface to bring in and die on an energy, well, cool, what are you going to do with that energy now that you can't use any more globals? Right, right, right. Good call. But you're right. An anti-global card would be the real nemesis of the Clayface global, considering it's a global enhancer. Yeah. Oh, there's also one of the Pip, the Trolls, will make them pay mm -hmm. an extra energy to use a global. So yep. you're kind of losing all gains you get from clay facing, but so there's another team that I think people have seen that makes great use of the clay face global. Cool. Now that the magic missile or unstable canister have rotated out, yeah. Iceman was kind of <laughs> stuck and on ice. But then with Infinity Gauntlet, we got the Turk Barrett, which says to well, it has an energize effect, but more importantly. While he's active, when you spend a mask energy to use a global ability or field a character die, deal one damage to target character die. Yep. And so you can use it to ping your own Iceman, thereby dealing two damage to the opponent. And since your Clayface is a mask, you can use the Static Field as a mask. And then popular pairing with that is a cheap mask die in Avengers ID card, right? which also has a mask global that you can use a lot. Hey, <laughs> mask target character die in the reserve pool or field zone gets the Avengers affiliation. So you can just make all of the sidekicks and everything you want an Avenger, all the while pinging Iceman. Yeah. And, and it's also are, got a third that's, effect, that's great. Uh, which is the burst face and i wouldn't mention it hadn't saved my butt a number of times against people who bring force attacks and then the force attack attack they knock it out and it has to infiltrate so they can't let it through and then it rolls back on the burst face every time and you get wins you don't deserve because <laughs> you're super lucky you know i mean there's other little tricks you can play with this i remember if you have parallax or the Asurak global you can clay face an action die in and then use the Asurak or the parallax global to roll it so you could buy an action clay face it in roll it on that turn and that can really surprise an opponent and let me just say that if you haven't played with that super rare adam warlock playing that with the new rare Black Widow can get pretty nasty with Clayface. So oh, yeah, that's a that's a good combo. Yeah, it's anything really with Energize is helpful with Clayface. Not because Energize triggers when you Clayface. That's not how it works. Fortunately, I guess would be the word. 
but it does give you something well, when to you use spin, your clay face with. Exactly. It activates that Adam When you spin, Warlock, it activates so. the Adam Warlock. And uh, <laughs> just outside of that, with a card like Black Widow, you have two masks in your reserve pool to start irritating people with immediately as, if, if you get yeah. the effect off. So so real quick before yeah. we side off, like let's, let's just hit up all these good two-cost mask cards that just jump to the front of your mind when you think about pairing with Clayface. Before we do that, though, your Parallax and Acerac comments, it's a shame that they're not in Modern, yeah. but you can pair it with one of the Storms from X-Men Forever, mm-hmm. who says when fielded, you can reroll an action die. So that would work too, sure. It works great. Uh, I think Shadow Meld was using that on a Godcatcher team, and he was one of the first ones to start really punishing people with that. <laughs> yeah, sure. I and mean, if you build a Mask Bolt team with Clayface, it could work great, right? Yeah. Uh, that's the other team that works well with uh, Nebula teams, because Nebula is just the up-to-date version of the Atom team, and she's a Mask, so there's inherent synergy to that, just spinning your Nebulas around and getting, again, yeah. more wins you don't deserve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really, any global that you can use a bunch of times, paying a Mask... It's it's going to be win-win, especially if you can do it on the opposing turn. Yeah. I think the only global that doesn't really play well with it is the Becky Lynch global. Yeah, you were mentioning that. Explain why you think so. So the trouble with the Becky Lynch global is you pay a shield, and the first die you purchase this turn is added to your prep area. Right. And so at the start of the game, you don't have anything in your used pile. So if you want to use the Clayface global, then you're buying something to use for the Clayface global to bring in it's not going to be helpful, and then you can't use Becky anymore because you've already purchased the die. Right. So you kind of have to wait till turn two, maybe even three, before you can really start using them both. But honestly, if you're using the Atlas prep, it's probably better control for your bag anyways. Right. I know when I first started out, the Rip Hunter's chalkboard was a great global to use. You get to prep your die first. But really, you learn how to use Atlas or Resurrection, Villainous Pact, Mm -hmm. one of those. It's a far better way to manage your bag and get the dice you need and understand the bag flow. Yeah. Any opinions on the merits of of the Villainous Pact as opposed to Atlas, given that it's a mask? I mean, it has those restrictions. What's your feeling in terms of which pairs better with Clayface? I think it really just depends on where you have the slot for the prep global. Mm. Do you have a throwaway slot for your basic action? Villainous Pact is pretty good. Not to mention it's a really good and underlooked uh, action. And win condition, Because when people buy it and use it, (laughs) you can really punish them if they don't have villains. But it does limit you to just the one prep per turn. And so if you already have something in prep, can't flip your bag with the Villainous Pact. Atlas, however, you can just always prep with it. But it's on a character slot, so I think it really just depends on where do I have that extra slot on my team. Is it an extra character, or is it extra basic action? Maybe what type of energies am I focusing on? But one thing you do want to consider is if you're running Atlas and your opponent brings some sort of prep, you've suddenly expanded beyond the 5-in, uh, 5-out rule, and you need to kind of count how many dice are you going to prep, mm-hmm. and then use your clay face to maneuver that. Yep. And likewise, if you've got two clay face ability, mm-hmm. yeah, it might be nice to use the other clay face in the same turn, but I think the bag management is going to be better overall. Yes. So kind of know and count your dice if both players have Atlas and both players have Clayface, you just do everything twice as much. It's six in, six out, and twice the... Sh- well, actually, upwards of four times the shenaniganery, you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. 
it multiplies the complexity of the game. Sometimes when I see double Clayface, my head kind of explodes. <laughs> yeah, I, I think if you're going to bring Clayface, you got to practice with it. And then you also have to practice if your opponent has Clayface. Yeah. And sometimes you just don't use their Clayface. Yep. It's a good idea. Yeah, learning how to say no in this game, you know, just because you can do something doesn't make it a good idea, right? Yeah, that, that's one of my problems. It's like, I have all this energy. <laughs> I want to buy an, another die. Time to go shopping. So you don't really need the die. <laughs> Get what you need for your win con and just cycle the bag back to it. Uh, I yeah, mean, I if you can keep your bag under control and get the big thing and prep your dice if, if it all works out well then do it if it's if, that, if your clay facing is coming at the cost of your bag control maybe reconsider well let me but, well, before we finish this section on clay face and atlas that seems like a good topic any advice for people in terms of when to stop buying how to use clay face with restraint in a way that's actually effective as opposed to flooding your bag and Maybe if you could talk about how do you know when you've reached that threshold where you've put too much into your bag where it's actually a hindrance rather than a help. I am probably the worst person to talk with that because I'll just turn on the fire hose and point it right at my bag. I'm a big fan of things like the yawning portal and big entrance. Just throw everything in the bag and figure it out, which if you are that type of player, I encourage you to investigate the Hella Global to remove sidekicks from your bag Mm -hmm. or other just prep globals will help you get back to center. And that's one of the hardest things to do in the game is if you get your bag off kilter, finding that way to recenter your bag, get it flipping the right way, and Clayface can really help. Yep. But still, you really just have to count your dice. How many dice can you purchase? Is buying that extra die really going to help you or not? Would it be better to just prep, have more dice next turn, know exactly what you're going to have? And I think that's going to win game in, game out a majority of times. Right. And that's what ultimately we're searching for is a little more consistency in all of this. Yeah, and that's what these two globals really provide is just consistency. You know what you're going to pull your next turn, and the clay face will help you get there. Yep. Or to get the energy you need in the reserve pool to do your damage. So, yeah, it's a super jack-of-all-trades global, right? It's a Swiss army knife in all, so many ways. It's all of the prepositions in the English language. <laughs> All right, Nick, any any last thoughts or uh, are we ready to call it an evening on the Clayface and Atlas? I mean, aside from writing a uh, 100-page dissertation on it, I think that's good. (laughs) Oh, great. Well, we're looking forward to hearing other people's thoughts. Again, this isn't all-encompassing, but it gives you a taste of the power of this global and the things you might be on the lookout for to put it to good use or to be at least aware of if you put it on your team it could be a double-edged sword yeah and i definitely think in this modern meta if you bring it like we said make sure you can use it better than your opponent yep but if your opponent brings it make sure you can bring it better than they can too (laughs) right on thanks nick it's always great to talk to nick yeah and let's keep that ball rolling by introducing our second guest to discuss the third and fourth most used cards from the list of the current meta a member of the Dice Masters United crew who's relatively recently returned to London, 
Please welcome back to the show our current world champion, Mr. Ben Saeed Scott. Hello, happy to be here. You'll get the full introduction in post. Well, worry. no, yeah, I'm, 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 you know, <laughs> after after medical intervention, I'm stopping doing doing all things to you lower my that. blood pressure at this time, <laughs> so I can't do the big wind up anymore. Much to I'm sure everyone's great delight <laughs> i'll be laying off of that for the for the future <laughs> but welcome back ben it's great to have you thank you yeah no it's been uh been a while but good about to be here yeah yeah we yeah, obviously we've taken a little bit of a hiatus but we're we're back in the action here and like i said we've been crunching big data and i gotta ask you a real quick question if we were gonna have you talk about two particular cards gazer evil familiar the intimidating gazer and Becky Lynch made in Ireland. And like I said, we're doing kind of a big data crunch here. And we've taken the entire tournament history of the last year and put it on a giant spreadsheet. And if you had to guess where those two cards came out on the list of most played, where would you put them? Just as a guess. So Becky would probably be, so in all the tournament and all the teams... Probably Becky would be number one, I imagine, because even without her being the main focus, the global's still good. Mm-hmm. Gazer, I wouldn't put as near the top. I'd say maybe in the top, maybe top thirty cards, if I had to guess. Yeah, I would. I would agree with you. But would you be surprised to find that they were three and four? So it was Gazer, believe it or not, a little bit higher than Becky's. Surprisingly, really. Yeah, the analogy we're using, we're we're talking about Ziff's law in this one, which is word usage in text. And I think Gazer may be so high, like if you just took the Bible, for example, God would probably come up more than he does in regular regular conversation or regular text. Mm -hmm. So. I think given the meta that exists right now with tokens and god catchers and other things in the meta, perhaps Gazer is higher than he would be in any other meta. I mean, he's certainly useful yeah, in any case, I mean, but yeah, he, he ended up at three, if you can believe it. He's, uh, he's got lots of good uses. Yeah. For sure. Before we get started on this, do you happen to have those cards in front of you? It would be great if one of us could read them. Yeah, I can <laughs> read them. So Gazer Evil Familiar is a two-cost shield. And the Trouble in Water Deep set. It has the evil affiliate. Is it affiliation? It's not an affiliation, is it? It's so alignment, alignment, I think they're calling yep. it. Yeah. Alignment. Thank you. Intimidate, um, which is a keyword. And intimidate when fielded, remove target opposing character die from the field zone until the end of turn. And then the stipulation, because intimidate always comes with a stipulation generally. Gazer can only use intimidate on a character die with one or less experience token. Which rarely comes into play, but if you happen to be facing an adventurer team, it can be challenging right yeah so i was being thinking about that actually because um there's not so uh, do you want me to read the becky first and then we can go into talking about the details of them well sure let's do that all right so becky lynch uh from the wwe set maiden island is a five cost shield uh, has overcrush which is another keyword and then when fielded we roll up to two target superstar dice each die that does not roll a superstar face goes to the use pile becky lynch deals one damage to your opponent for each die sent to the use pile in this way she also has a global pay um, shield. The first die you purchase this turn is added to your prep area instead of your use pile. And massive stats to go along with all of those useful Jeez. abilities. <laughs> yeah, 2A8 on top level and then 7-7 seven, seven on two level 2, which is pretty good as well. Yeah, yeah for a 5 cost, yeah, or a 4 cost in the, on the other version of her card. But yeah, incredible stats. Well, great. So let's let's roll back and talk about Gazer a little bit then. And in terms of that stipulation, we were just about to talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so Gazer, so Intimidate is a very useful ability. It's been useful since it came out when 
which was maybe in Civil War, if memory serves me. I don't think it was in any of the earlier sets. Mm, yeah. But Intimidate has always been kind of around. Uh, it's just a good way to get rid of a character out of the field for one turn. Where it really rose to prominence was as a countermeasure to uh, Wonder Woman Reflections mm-hmm. and the Angela, which stopped when fielded effects. Because Intimidate as a keyword, even though it triggers when fielded, uh, ignores kind of stuff that stops when fielded. So you can use the Gazer to intimidate off a Wonder Woman and then field all your other when fielded effects to get the most right. out of that. But generally, when Intimidate's been on other cards before, it's always either been expensive, so like a four cost is what you get for Intimidate without, for free, basically. Intimidate without any kind of stipulations. Yep. But otherwise, they always have kind of something that stops them being useful all the time. Yeah, or really tricky. I was thinking of that Punisher, that Punisher from Civil War, which was a fun card to play, but you had to really manage your bag and kind of get lucky in terms of rolling characters to make it super effective, you know? Uh, yeah, and so they've every time they reduced it, they've kind of given a stipulation. I think Gazer is the one where they've reduced the cost enough and the stipulation isn't so punishing, especially mm-hmm. in the current meta, because, yeah, like you said, there's not many that many characters with experience tokens, let alone the fact that they have to still get those experience tokens, even if they have the ability to get those experience tokens. Right. It, it matters for the draft, which is fun and i appreciate that but i'm also kind of glad that it doesn't matter outside the draft because you know there is so much uh, fire going on in the in the meta right now <laughs> speaking There's, of fire what so we talked a little bit about the tokens and stuff but could you kind of elaborate why gazer is perhaps i mean like you said you will be useful all the time but particularly useful right now yeah so the big problem i suppose now is we have very few ways of getting rid of tokens mm-hmm. and that's a big problem right now because of one card in particular, although I think there's argument to be made for the Great Drunkard being actually quite useful, yeah. token maker. But the Godcatcher, uh, which makes uh, 10 attack, 10 defense tokens, which I think are probably yeah. the biggest stats <laughs> in the game, even outside of like the Egyptian gods, yeah. I don't think you get much bigger. You don't get anything bigger than 10 yeah. 10. Well, you can get like a, a 10 attack or a 10 defense, but you can't have both <laughs> with the Egyptian yeah, gods. Yeah, yeah. And then on top of that, the Godcatcher has that weird ability, which I always forget about, where when you attack, you can force something to block, which is really also a pain. Yeah, great removal. But the, basically, the Godcatcher, you can spam a bunch of these tokens out by just playing actions. And of course, Godcatcher counts himself as an action. So if you play one Godcatcher, you can then play a second one to trigger the first one. And then that cycles back around, play again. Mm-hmm. And that's just with two Godcatcher dice. So Intimidate works well against those, because when you remove a token from the field zone, it can't come back because it's not held in place by anything, the token effectively. It's its own entity while in the field zone. Mm-hmm. But if it is removed to the use pile or the prep area, it can't physically exist out of those areas. So the token kind of disappears into the ether. Vanishes away. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's interesting because like usually when we have a card that is, I don't want to say unbalanced, but overpowered compared to the other powers and i'm willing and, to call it unbalanced well you, I'm, I'm not oh, you're I'm just not talking, talking about Godcatcher. Uh, i'm talking about, about uh, gazer yeah. in this case <laughs> yeah, like gazer. we ben was talking about how usually intimidate has been more expensive or more tricky to pull off and the, the stipulation in this case was really only useful against adventurer teams so the, one could make the argument that it's much stronger than its fellow intimidators and usually when we have cards like that, there kind of becomes a feeling from the community of loathing and disgust. But in this case, because of a card that has generated a lot of kind of loathing uh, and disgust, loathing and, disgust <laughs> and that is the Godcatcher, 
there's actually people look at the gazer with a little bit of thank god the gazer exists you well, know especially because there's no way really there's not a very effective way for a god catcher team to kind of control the gazer like to, um, stop, to, yeah. to stop it from working so if you want to get around the gazer you just kind of have to outpace it and that's generally a little bit difficult to do considering that your team works around a three cost and their works around a two cost that they can supreme intelligence over or uh, becky lynch over if you're using them together and that often they do go together because this is shield synergy with becky lynch i don't know but yeah well speaking of that ben you've played Gazer before right so what what if you're playing if you're a gazer player what do you not want to see on the other side of the table what are sort of good counter intimidate cards do you if you can think of any well i guess the main thing and why there's not a lot of hate there's any kind of praise for uh, gazer in general <laughs> because i think intimidate is such a clean keyword yeah it's very short in usefulness but it's almost always useful in every situation. Yep. So I don't think there are many, that many cards where you don't want to see something opposite, right? Mm-hmm. I think probably way, what you wouldn't want is like a fish slap team, a sidekick generating team. Because yeah. one thing I will say about Gazer is it's a bit annoying that he has two defense. He's hard to get out of the field if they have a bunch of sidekicks that just kind of chump block. Interesting. Oh, that level mm-hmm. two, on that level three face. And then he also has... Zero one one fielding, which doesn't sound like a lot, but can be. So if you have to clear a massive field, he's right. not going to do that job. So any team that's going to go particularly wide. Mm-hmm. And also maybe teams that don't care about having a wild active effect. So things that have wind field effects to damage you, like against the kind of old school gobby team, I don't think he'd do much against. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Now, as a transfer power player that I know you are, maybe you could talk a little bit about mm-hmm. how Gazer would nicely fit in with a team like that. Well, I think kind of going back to Luke and the kind of synergy with Becky Lynch as well. One of the key pieces on the Becky Lynch team is that force block with the shields on the Booker T. Yeah. So when you have a shield global like transfer power or Booker T, where you kind of constantly want that type of energy generated. Yep. Gazer's a great one because you roll it. If they don't have anything you want to intimidate out right now, you roll it for shields, you keep the shields. If not, you can field it, get rid of a character, attack with it, probably going to get blocked, might get KO'd, or might go through for one and then cycle back around. With transfer power in particular, that kind of becomes a double threat. And transfer power is just a great one for any little characters that have wind fielded effects that you want to remove consistently. Because you field those, you attack with it, if they let it through, you can swap to steal their highest stats. If they do block, you swap to get a KO'd. If you don't roll it, you just use it to pump up or to swap attacks with other characters. Yep. So yeah, that kind of Winfield and constantly wanting to cycle things around uh, has its a very useful place super. Uh, on a transfer power team. Yeah, super nice energy. Any other cards that you think play well with a Gazer team? Well, I think Shields potentially... I don't know. I've, I've I've started spreading the word slightly, but I think Shields <laughs> could be actually the, the meta team right now. Yeah, I have a I have a, I'm working on a team with the Proxima Midnight, which when you field it, you can carry something to reduce the cost of the next thing you buy by two. Yep. In tandem with a whole bunch of other Shields, including Rare Pit the Troll, and it's basically just a bunch of Shield removal. You use the Proxima to just generate a bunch of stuff using the She Hulk Greeny which lets you field something from the use pile. Mm-hmm. And it's really Oof. pretty fast and it's pretty strong. And Gaze is a nice one for that because it gives you that secondary way of removing something really quickly. Yep. And then it also just generates cheap masks for the tag out global, which I'm loving at the moment. Interesting. Oh, great. Great. Yeah. And uh, anything else? Like we were talking a little bit about a clay face that that tag out global might be good with a clay face on there too, just to get the two two shields two from shields Gazer easy. in there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or if somebody else brings it, even yeah, better, I think right? maybe something like again, yeah, going back to the Becky team, 
which we're going to probably talk about in a second. But having a cheap shield character is great for the clay face just because you can bring it in and then buy a five cost yeah. shield character yeah. on your second turn. <laughs> also, I mean, uh, it's also good for stuff like Atlantis works well with. Yep. When, or I should probably actually say if. The Dark Phoenix that ever comes out will have blue eyes back, and that'll be really good for Gazer and that sort of thing too. Can so. you for the for the listeners out there, the Tag Out Global? Some people might not be familiar with that who haven't dipped into the WWE site. Can you remind folks what that does? Yeah, so it's Kurt Angle. I mean, I probably need reminding myself most of the time because <laughs> I think I use it slightly. I, I know I've used it wrong uh, several times, and it's kind of a weird one to get your head around. So Kurt Angle has the three versions of the tag out global so you pay two shields and then target superstar or in this case target gazer or monster die gains tag out so what tag out does is when a character after the blocking step or blocking phase or after characters are blocked you can remove a character from the use pile putting it in the prep area to give another character plus two attack plus two defense or uh, from the field zone to the prep area from the field zone sorry field zone to prep area yeah And that does not count as knocking out. It does not count as knocking out, but it still does effectively remove them into Mm -hmm. the prep area. So with stuff like Pip, the troll, uh, it's perfect. Or Proxima, which has been stuck in the field because you carried something else. Or Gazer, because they have a bunch of sidekicks. It works really well because you can attack with two Gazers, say. They let one through and they block the other one with the sidekick, so it won't get carried but then you can tag out the gazer that's being blocked to pump the other gazer that's going through, and then you generate more attack. Yeah, especially on a team like that, which doesn't have high attack and you want to keep recycling. It makes tons of sense, right? That's great. Thank you for talking about that. Yeah. So the card you mentioned that it really, gazer, unironically that they're three and four right next to each other, uh, that it plays well with is Becky Lynch. And, and she's sort of been one of the... We were talking about cards that people kind of, their stomach turns a little bit when they hear it. Becky's one of them. I mean, she's powerful, and you better know how to play her in this game. And you've played her a bunch now, Ben. So can you talk to us just from, like, if you had to kind of zoom way out uh, from from space and look down at why she's a good card? Don't love me saying I've played it a lot. Well, you've played it to, with great effect, I should say. You've played it Tarnishing in some of the major terms. Yeah. But so, but, but what was your decision? I mean, you, you've talked about it a little bit, but I, just if, if people haven't heard your excellent podcast, why, why from just no, a course. super macro perspective, why is this card so good on so many levels? Well, so actually talking about the podcast, so I'm on a podcast called DM United. We talk about a bunch of Dice Master stuff. But in particular, we've been doing a series on energy types. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the game and we just recorded a mask mask energy type podcast and i was thinking about becky lynch in relation to this kind of how you categorize the different energy types and actually becky lynch has a bit of a mask thing to her she's a bit of a bolt thing to her she has a bit of a fist thing to her and she has a bit of a shield thing to her yeah. i think it's basically all the good parts of the four energy types mm-hmm. come together in probably what's been i'd argue in my mind probably the strongest card that's ever been made for the game which is Saying a lot because we've had some pretty strong cards that have required banning. But I think just the combination of the overcrush with the crazy stats would be good. 
Well, and it, it is good it, on the forecast. She's going to be good in any meta, any time you drop her in. She's going to be dominating that meta. There's not a meta I can think of where she wouldn't be excellent. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm hearing that you think mm-hmm. the forecast is excellent, but the five cost is even better. I'm, I'm hearing that you're going in that direction. Is that correct? Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> and why would that be? Yeah. So the forecast is excellent. It's a prototypical fist card, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, just overcrush with the good stats. So for one more, you get the same stats and the same ability overcrush, which is a really fist type uh, ability and can smash face. And that's a win condition by itself, right? Right. But on top of that, you get an excellent kind of the way I think about the shield ramp and shield forms a ramp. Or it's all about getting that one thing you need because yep. they're, they're defensive pieces. So you get that one bit of defense set up. So you have like Resurrection, which preps one die. And you have the Becky Lynch Global, which was formerly the Chalkboard Global. And that lets you get the die you just bought into the prep area for next round. So it has that kind of shield ramp type style. Yep. And I think even without any of the other abilities, again, she'd be on the team just for the Global. And she has been on teams just for the Global. Yeah. And that removal. So that part's really good as well. So, yeah, yeah the, the removal and the, the burn. <laughs> and then you add the removal, which kind of has a mask type removal effect and also deals ping damage, which is a bolt type effect generally. Yeah. And why that's so powerful is all the forms of overcrush protection we have are generally actually as global overcrush protection, but generally they are while active effects that yeah. you keep a character in the field to protect you from overcrush. Stuff like Jopper, stuff like Mastermind, stuff like Poison Ivy. Yeah. All have a 50-50 chance of being removed by that Becky Lynch. And then set that aside. Okay, for some reason, you're just not attacking with Becky Lynch. You just keep fielding her, re-rolling their sidekicks. Just spin those out. I mean, I think it would probably be on the team with just the stats alone and that secondary when fielded ability. So all, all three of the things together make up a card that kind of meets the requirements of all four types of energy. And it's just, uh, yeah, she's ridiculous. Yeah, and if you think about like the challenges, one of the fun things I usually think about this, the challenges of this game in terms of team building is getting all your needs met in eight slots. And she meets three or four in one card. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's easy to see why she may be played so high because win condition, removal, great global, ramp, defense, you know, yeah. huge stats. What's not to like about this card or, or damage, load, I suppose? You know? Four different ways to consider a win condition, everything, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, so before we get into how to counter her, so let's talk about some of the cards besides Gazer who naturally find their way onto a Becky team. I think Becky finds its way onto any other team, mm-hmm. which is kind of the problem with her, right? right? So you don't necessarily have to build a Becky team. You can build whatever team you want and then just be like, I'll put Becky on because that's right. <laughs> just because <laughs> I think even some of the so I was thinking about this we just did the two team takedown and Becky was banned because she'd been previously played in other tournaments and won but the forecast wasn't banned and I lost so many games to just people buying all the forecasts and just smashing my face right and I wish I'd kept the forecast on there not for trying to win with that just so I could field it to protect from the stats right because I don't know <laughs> if there's any other forecasts with an 8-8 on top level just yeah. to defend against her yeah so talking about cards that are good I think she's good with everything but then you add stuff like the Booker T which we talked about mm-hmm. and the Jerry Lawler which yep. people might argue is the also broken card yeah, <laughs> um, yes which doubles over crash damage essentially with the global uh, and the action itself and being a shield on that Booker T you know talk about a natural synergy yeah <laughs> It's interesting to see Booker T was much yeah. higher on the list than Jerry, even though Jerry, people think of Jerry as the super broken card. But I think because 
you can play Becky without Jerry and do still do pretty damn well with just Booker, you know, because <laughs> having that force block global is, mm-hmm. you, you, well, and I don't also, know if you need it. You don't necessarily need it, but it really helps. Well, with that it's team. a very legitimate form of removal and you can use it with control teams and all sorts of shield shenaniganery teams. But with Jerry Lawler, unless you know you can win with it, you're not going to bring it because it's a threat if somebody else needs it. Seems like most people who play Becky are bringing Booker. And bring if you Booker. bring Booker, then you bring one of your other favorite cards, right? Yeah, well, I mean, you could bring Jerry Lawler, <laughs> but you don't need to, right? I'm sorry, but go on, Ben. So you were saying other cards that naturally synergize with it. My favorite card of all yeah. time, I think, at this moment. I was thinking about this because like, we were recording the Mask segment, mm-hmm. and Danny Moonstar is just a delightful card. Yeah. It works so well with the Booker T as a backup win condition, as a primary win condition. I think about it works so well with the Iceman team and the Becky team, yeah. and probably even the Thor team, because if you attack with it, you're going to have to let it through so it can keep cycling that way. So if Danny attacks and you block her, you have to re-roll your die. And if it rolls energy, it goes to the use pile and you take two damage. And she's free to field in every level. So she's just delightful. Yeah. With the book T, you can force them to block with a bunch of stuff and then attack with her and then re-roll all that stuff. So yeah, that's that's a really good card to play with the book of T. Not necessarily the Becky, but the book of T. And Becky's going to be on a book of T team. Yeah, interesting. Rather than talking about what cards you would play with Becky, I think maybe it'd be better off talking about why you wouldn't want Becky on your team. Good question. Aside from the moral, you know, if you don't (laughs) want to be a jerk. Right, well, what are the dangers of having Becky on your team? Or why wouldn't you want to play her? There are definite downsides to having the chalkboard slash Becky Lynch global on your team. Whenever you choose to have a global on your team, just think about what it benefits you to do and what it benefits the opponent to do. Yep. And if you don't have any cheap characters or characters you want immediately, and you have to really think about that kind of setup because the Becky Lynch global makes a massive difference to how you set up. If you're doing kind of a perfect turn three, I want to buy something, a bigger character, it doesn't work quite so well because generally if you want to buy something, say a five or six cost on turn three and get it prepped for turn four, Mm -hmm. what you want to do is do your bag cycle on turn two, which means you prep all the dice you've bought turn one and two and prep them over, roll them all on turn three. What Becky does is pushes that kind of purchase forward a step because you can prep the die you buy on turn one which means you can roll it on turn two. That could be beneficial, but kind of messes up your bag yep. if you're used to a certain way of playing. So if you do want to buy a six-cost character, I think Becky Lynch is not a good choice. So something on like a Thor team, I don't think Becky Lynch is the best choice because mm-hmm. of that global, it'll benefit your opponent more than it benefits you. Unless you've got some sort of form of discounting thing going on. But yeah, it's tricky. Then you've got to add another slot and, and it gets kind of crazy fast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so yeah, also, I think if you're going for a super rare Thor team, you're not focused on the Becky. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. Any other cards? And, and it seems to me when you were talking about this, a card jumped to mind that is a good counter to Becky that would benefit from the global. And that, that might be like uh, the new Drax. Any other cards that, that you can think of that are good counters to Becky? That you don't want if you're if you're playing a Becky yeah, team, what cards is, do you not want to see? Sorry, go ahead. Well, I think the Drax is actually a really good example of what I was just talking about. Because if you have the Becky Lynch global and they have a Drax and they goes second that means they can prep the drax on turn one and that's way before you can get the becky out right and they can feel drax turn two and stop you from purchasing becky so drax is a good example of what you don't want to see if you haven't prepared your counters to it already with the becky team right that's a really good one anything where you don't rely on having a field is a good one to play against the becky look at that way stuff like i not that many when fielded damage effects but stuff like proxima or Spider-Man rare, 
the stuff you just want to throw your opponent and cycle as much as you can mm-hmm. because you don't want characters in the field for them to double up their Becky damage right with uh, or even roll out also i mean yes stuff like joppa and mastermind are very inconsistent against becky because she gets to re-roll them half the time <laughs> but like if you get two of them now you're looking at 25 percent chance although they have two of their beckys and they get to negate that as well but i mean it's still it's a, still a solid counter if you're the ratio being three to five. I don't know. Cool. Any any other thoughts? I did about- work out a way to stop Becky. I did well, I did work out a way to completely nullify Becky, and that's with the Joppa and Chainmail Armor. Mm-hmm. So Chainmail Armor, when equipped, so equipped character gets plus four defense and cannot be affected by opposing when fielded effects. This die counts as gear, cannot be ignored. So if you can get Chainmail Armor onto a Joppa, right. it can't be affected by when fielded, and Joppa takes no damage from when attacking. Print all damage done to a Joppa by a character of equal or lower level, or prevent all damage to Joppa while he's blocking. Right. So if you get both of those out in tandem, that nullifies Becky entirely. I tested it a little bit. Uh, it was it was okay. <laughs> How did it compare to like something <laughs> like best. Angela just having the stopping the wind fielded abilities? I mean, she's not going to stop the overcrush, so, but at least she might not get rolled like out. The, and yeah, and that's the problem is the thing with Angela, even if it kind of works similarly in the fact that you have to get a three cost and a four cost out before they right. get one five cost out. I mean, it can, it could, especially if you can take that first Becky hit, which you're probably going to. Yeah. And I think the my advice is if you're playing Becky, just let it through as much as you can let it through. <laughs> yeah. Because you don't, what you don't want against an overcrush character is them to do overcrush damage ever. Because if they do overcrush damage, that likely means they're staying in the field to do it again. Again and again. Um, that's the idea of how easily they can repeat it. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, sir. May I have so, another? <laughs> <laughs> so that's, I think that there's play maybe, especially with like the Thor global, maybe it's a, it's a way to think about that chainmail armor on the Joppa. So that might be something to test against it. The yeah. other thing we were thinking about doing with Becky is using fast quick enough. Fast kills Becky before Becky could do the overcrush damage. So, so that was can, another theory I was playing around with in a, as a way to stop Becky. So what, which fast were you using uh, Black Tom and then doing the double damage thing? Was that, yeah, was that your Jerry, secret? Yeah, if they have Jerry Lawler, yeah, you can yeah. double his attack. Yeah, not yeah. bad. Yeah, I, I remember trying that with... Which which character had the fast that was so good? Uh, oh, it was the Negative Wong. Man? Or, Wong used, uh, to, be able Wong, to, used yeah. to be able to do that against the... Uh, that's the old Wong. Yeah, but the old Wong against Mr. Fixit used to be that used to be a fun trick to play against Fixit teams that wanted to do the same thing. Fast is underused mm. and better than you think it is, right? Because because Mr. Fixit only has five defense on that one face, and right. Wong can get up to four attacks. So, so if they ping once, if they ping once, then then your Wong is gonna take right. care of Fixit. You right. know? Or you can get two Wongs. Well, that's one of the dangers of the the Jerry Lawler Global. Like you're giving them the tools to effectively have enough to carry the Becky. Right. Interesting. So it's interesting to see how many the teams. Combat damage. Speaking of the Jerry Lawler, the double ringside announcer Booker T combo, how often when you're playing the Becky teams, how often do you actually put Jerry on as well, percentage wise, and, and the number of times you've played the Becky team? Yeah, I was going to play in a competitive tournament. I think it would probably be a 50 50 toss up whether I put it on or not. It depends mm-hmm. what I want else in the team and what i was doing right generally you have a spare slot for a basic action in most teams you build in my experience you just kind of that they're they're the kind of spaces where you have free energy and if you're not putting a prep global on there and there isn't a prep global outside of villainous pact which has its own kind of problems with putting on a team and risks so if you're putting an atlas out in on your team already then you probably have that slot spare for a jerry lola and it's not a bad one to throw on but then 
if you think everyone else is going to run Jerry Lawler, then you're kind of giving up a free slot for yourself. It's like that old PXG question, isn't it, really? Right. If everyone was running PXG, do you need to run PXG? Right. Well, any other thoughts and advice for folks who are interested in playing a Becky team or playing against a Becky team? Having played it several times, what are your overall thoughts, impressions of playing the team and maybe some practical advice for folks? I think the key thing, as I, probably my best advice for any team, is working out how you're going to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, have a clear plan for how you're going to buy the Becky. And there's lots of different ways to do that, whether you're kind of like, basically work out a plan to how you're going to get Becky and then how you're going to get that Becky on the field and winning. If all goes smoothly and if all doesn't go smoothly, you can do tricks like the Atlantis where you can Becky Lynch Atlantis on turn one and then put all your dice in the prep area for turn two and then buy a whole load of stuff. That's a good way to get Becky. There's also kind of Becky teams where you want to protect yourself a bit and then set up Becky as kind of the win con to a control team effectively. Mm -hmm. But that Becky global is tricky, so learn how to play that. And what might be useful is just play a bunch of games where you don't necessarily want to buy Becky, you're just focusing on using the global. So once you work out how to use the global well, you have a big boost up. Because I think people kind of throw the Becky on and then don't think about the fact that she has a global. Right. And that global is sneaky good by itself. Yes, it is. Any advice on that global in terms of when to use it, when to lay off? I know you, you, you started talking about this a little bit. And I think I cut you off. So I'm going to let you finish that thought. Well, just like with any shield kind of ramp, it's all about getting that one die. So what are the one dies you want to buy that are going to affect the game most? When do you need to use the Becky global? When do you need to focus on getting your bag ramp right? Mm-hmm. And ideally, I think with a team like Becky Lynch, you never want to buy with the becky lynch global you never want to buy more than one character a turn or one die a turn right because you always want to have the thing you bought go straight there the problem is if you buy more than one thing it gets lost in your bag because you can't becky lynch the second thing right Mm. this is a meta that does i think tend to to reward being very lean and intentional with your decisions you know speaking of being lean and intentional and buying dice if a game's going perfectly for you how many Made in Ireland dice do you want to buy? And if it's going sideways, how many have you just ever one. bought? <laughs> you know, I guess it's the, the follow-up question on that. Yeah, just one, I think, is the key. Mm-hmm. Because you don't you want things to be repeatable. And the more you buy of things, you think... It's, it's funny, because statistically, the more you buy of something, the more repeatable it, it should, in theory, become. Right. But actually, with Overcrush, like I said before, what your ideal situation is, you hit with Overcrush, you do a big chunk of damage... Dave left the Becky in the field, and then next turn you can just do it back again straight away. So it's a kind of one-two punch. Right. Buying more of those Beckys costs energy, costs time to get them round, and you're probably then having to rely on the removal. And while the removal is a very nice benefit, it's not guaranteed. It is only 50-50 at best. So don't rely on Becky for removal. It can be a backup. It's kind of like the old Billy Club, rare. Right. to think about that as potential removal but if i was buying a bunch of billy clubs i was not doing well (laughs) right right and the same goes from becky how many beckys have you in a game that went sideways have you ever bought more than three have you even bought three of her what's what's the most beckys you bought bought? i think i think probably two maybe i've only played becky in really high competitive games so i think right in those games, I kind of have other ways. I always think about it, like, if if I'm going to buy Becky, is it worth me investing five? What's the benefit I'm getting out of it? Right. Can that benefit be met by something like a Gazer, which is three less? 
or if Danny. I'm getting it to remove that one piece that's annoying my Becky, right? Then Gates is the better choice, right? Also, the thing with Becky is the one downside to her maybe is her fielding cost. So you know, the more Beckys you have, the more fielding cost you're paying too, and. Like you said, you want to get her out and keep her out if possible. <laughs> there, there, there is steel well, for what you get for also them. Also, her defensive stats as well, right? Yeah. yeah. Because you, you can't get it out of the field. Yeah. Interesting. Well, that's some good food for thought. And thank you for joining us, Ben. We really appreciate it. Any other things that you want to cover that we might have not touched on so far in terms of Gazer and Becky in this whole list of Ziff's Law? Just uh, telling people to watch out for shield teams. I think work out because even stuff like Dreadnought and Sasha Banks. There's a Sasha Banks, which makes Proxima free to field on every face, which is really massive for Proxima because she's one to field on every face. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I'd like people to mess around with shield teams. It's not just me. Yeah. Yeah, no, they're, so it's they're not just me. Shield teams, whenever they're good, they're always the one that's sneaky good. Like when they won in 2018 or 2017, whatever the year was, the, uh, when yeah. they won the world championships, like nobody saw it coming because nobody wants to respect the shields. They always say, oh, think, look at the masks, look at the bolts. I think the shield, yeah. I, I think the shield team I have now is better than the shield, the lantern shield team that I used to have. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And, you know, I think people kind of thought, well, transfer power is not in the meta right now, so I don't really have to think about it. But like you've pointed out, there is a lot of really good mm-hmm. shields with more than just defense. They've got controly stuff going on, and some of them have, you know, nasty attack now, too. And certainly, yeah. you just mentioned two real prime pieces between Dreadnought and Becky and Gazer as well. And God, we can go on and on with this. Yeah. And, and proxima for that matter so well thank you yeah let's, i'm eager to hear more about your shield team in the future and thank you again for coming on and joining us and hopefully we can have you back shortly yeah thank you for having me anytime well hopefully we've given the listeners something interesting to intellectually ponder and some practical advice to put to good use. If nothing else, we've had the enjoyment of talking to Ben and Nick. Absolutely, and along those lines, I want to take a moment to plug the Dice Masters United crew, which, once again, Ben is a member of, along with Spug, Peter, and James. Most of our listeners probably already know, but they run an excellent podcast, YouTube video service, and a webpage. Not to mention, James puts on the weekly Dice Fight events. You can find details for all those things and more at their website dmunited.eu check it out time to wrap this sucker up indeed if anybody knows about a scene or is looking to start a scene in berlin germany please reach out as lucan is going to be over there until april and also we've got most of our prize support sitting in a box here waiting for the next set to finally drop so we can do the next one big weekend local event yeah it looks like that might actually be happening the first quarter of next year So all those of you who have a local scene or are looking to restart your local scene or are thinking of starting a local scene from scratch, please keep one big weekend in the back of your mind. Anything else? No promises in case the pandemic flares up again. But other than that, nothing I can think of. My galore. Let's hit it and quit. Let's hit it and quit. Until next time, loyal listeners. Slangafold! Well, that's the end of Turn 5, my friends, and it's time for the final clear. We hoped you enjoyed today's show. You can find us at rollinthunder.xyz, without a G or an apostrophe, where you'll discover all the links necessary to listen or subscribe to the show. 
You can also reach us by email at arge or lucan at rollandthunder.xyz. Our theme music was created by Jesse Weiner. We're in no way affiliated with WizKids, other than we love and celebrate the game of Dice Masters. So keep on rolling, August Narlagajia the Lao. We'll be talking again soon with another awesome guest. So stay tuned. Enough said. They can get pretty crazy when they do come up these uh, 17 year cicadas because they're just everywhere. Like the trees basically grow another set of bark, and there's just piles of dead cicadas and husks all around the trees. And it can smell pretty bad too.